You want to turn your Bible back to Luke 13? That's where we're going to start. Page 1010. I'm afraid for our church. I'm not afraid for, for the, the global church, the Christianity worldwide. I'm not afraid for uh, Anglicanism worldwide. I'm not afraid even for Sydney Anglicans. I'm afraid for us, for Barneys, for Ingleburn. I'm not afraid because of things outside the church. I'm not afraid that there might be persecution that comes our way. I'm not afraid of what the government can do. I'm not afraid that people will think we're a bunch of wallies. I'm not afraid because of what's outside the church, but because of what's inside it. By, by many measures, our church is a success. Attendance numbers are up year on year. We're going strong. Our ministries are flourishing. We've got record numbers of people coming. Our kids' ministries are fantastic. I mean, you guys don't get to see it, although a lot of you are leaders in those ministries. We've got kids coming along left, right and centre. We've got more leaders than ever before, and our leaders are being trained and cared for. We have more Bible study groups than we've ever had. Our budget, a quarter of a million dollars for two staff members and an MTS. By many measures, we are a successful church. Now, perhaps on the global scale, not really. I mean, you compare us to the mega churches, and well, maybe not so much. But you look around, and our church is a success. And that brings with it a very real danger. See, it's very easy, now that we've made it, to kick back, to enjoy that success, to get comfortable with it. It's nice when you come to church and there's a bunch of people there and there's kind of this vibe, this, this critical mass, this atmosphere. And to be honest, if you don't get on well with someone, it means that there's likely to be someone else that you do get along with. And the church is big enough that you're going to find a ministry that suits you. I mean, that's... And so we get comfortable. And we fill our week up with Christian ministries. And we spend our time with Christian people. And we just end up closing in until it's just us in a little holy huddle. Last week we had a visitor at one of our services. We were talking about the different kinds of churches that there are. And, and we kind of said, well, what church are we? And he said straight away, oh, well, we're a bomb shelter, right? We're a closed doors, just us in here doing our little thing. See, there's one measure by which perhaps we have failed. Who was here? Who was at St Barnabas in 2010? Show of hands, who was he? That was a decent amount. In 2010, as a church, we came up with this 2020 vision. I, I, I wasn't here, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm on board with it. We had this vision that by 2020, we wanted to see 10% of Ingleburn saved. Now, 10% of Ingleburn at the time was 1,000 people. Right? We had this vision to see 1,000 people saved out of hell and into light, transformed by the Lord Jesus, brought to church. That's a big number, a 1,000 people. But with it came one very small number. See, to achieve that vision, all that was required was for each one person to bring one other person to Jesus every two years. One, one, two. That's all it would have taken. If in 2010, each one of us had brought one person to Jesus every two years, by 2020, 10% of Ingleburn would have been saved. Now, I'm not saying that we've failed to save the lost, because that's God's job. 
It's clearly and unambiguously God who takes hearts of people who are his enemies and changes it to be his children. But I wonder if we had some sort of way of measuring the amount of times that you and I have shared our faith with others, whether we wouldn't fail. I wonder if we had some way of measuring our love for the lost, whether we wouldn't indeed more resemble the bunker than the oasis. Are our hearts full of concern that facing death, the only thing that is in store for everybody around us is hell? Is your heart full of anguish at the prospect that they will perish? And I tell you, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger here. I'm confessing my failure as much as anything else. What I want for us tonight is that God would reorient our hearts. I'm not going to give you tips on evangelism so much. It's not going to be a practical how-to. It's going to be a desire that God, by his word, would shape us so that as we see others, our hearts break and we love them such that we want them to be saved. Now, I'm going to pray that God would do that right now. Father, please, as we spend time in your word, please take from us our selfishness, Break our hearts where they need to be. Teach us to believe in the reality of hell. And give us love for the lost. Amen. Now we begin in Luke 13. And we begin in Luke 13 as the reminder that death awaits us all. There's a crowd gathered and Jesus is there with them and a bunch of people come to him and they say, Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's a group who's come up to Jesus and said, Jesus, did you hear about those guys over there? Man, they died a horrible death, didn't they? Can you imagine that? You're at the temple to present your sacrifices, to do your business with God, and Pilate came in, I presume killed them, and mixed their blood with their own sacrifices. Not just a horrible way to die, but desecration before God. And the implication is, surely these guys were particularly wicked. Surely they were evil. They, they must have been. I mean, they were the worst of the worst, right, Jesus? Or the second group of people, verse 4, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Right again, another group of people, they died hard. I mean, take it the first one might have been a slow, drawn out, painful death. These guys, it was over in an instant. But gee, they died a horrible death. Jesus, were they particularly sinful? To which Jesus replied, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered? I tell you no, verse 3, unless you repent. You too will all perish. Verse 5, I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Death comes for everyone. It might be slow and painful. It might be quick and unexpected. But there is nobody who is safe. Nobody has been able to come up yet with the mechanism to protect against death. The old... The young, death comes for both. The rich, the poor, the intelligent and the smiley faces in the HSC, right? Death will come for everybody sooner or later. 
And there is no salvation from it. Nobody who can escape it. Nobody who even knows when it's going to come. It can come at any moment for anybody. Just this morning, we had to stop the sermon, call an ambulance for a lady who... Right, she didn't die, it's okay. But in the mid-90s, my parents were working amongst university students in northeast Argentina. They worked for an organisation that was a national organisation. So there was a, a, a movement all across the country that for a long time had been lacking in capable male leadership. Right, the general secretary position it hadn't had someone to fill that role in a very long time and the movement suffered because of it. And so there was, it was much excitement when there was a, a young guy who came through the movement and graduated, became a professional, uh, just absolutely lovely guy. You can imagine, right, anything he touched turned to gold. He could do everything. Christian, he was just, he, he was the Messiah. He was the one. He was going to come and lead this movement into glory and, and it was going to be amazing. And so you can imagine the sadness in 2001 when the news came that as he'd been driving in his ute with his wife of less than one year, as he reached down to change the channel on the radio, he never noticed the car veer. He didn't see the truck that hit them. He died instantly. She walked away. Death comes for all. Now for you young guys sitting there, you think you're invincible. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I've had two of my friends now die at age 19 of leukaemia. And you've got to be prepared for it. For we will all perish. In fact, it's, it's worse than dying. You see those guys, the ones whose blood Pilate spilt, those ones that the tower fell on, see how horrible their deaths were? Well, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. It's not just die. The horror of their death shows the horror that awaits for us. It is, in fact, the horror of hell. We've been teaching through the Gospel of Mark in our English classes of late. And we came up to Mark chapter 9 two weeks ago. That's a very famous teaching that Jesus said. He's, uh, he's teaching this crowd and he says, if your hand causes you to sin, what does he tell them to do about it? Cut it off. Why? Because it is better to enter into heaven maimed than with both hands to go to hell. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Pluck it out. Why? Because it is better with one eye to enter into heaven than with both eyes to go into hell. And the description of hell is this, the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's why we read Revelation 20. Right as the devil and all his cronies, they get thrown into this lake of fire of eternal torment and the books get opened and every person ever lived is brought before the judge and those who are not found in the book of life, they join him. For the second death, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is where the lost are headed. It's hard to believe, to be honest. 
I mean, hell, eternity of damnation, of con- it, it's, it's hard to accept. I'll tell you when I find it the hardest is at the funeral of somebody who was not a Christian. And then you're like, oh, gee, Re- really? Do, do I, is, is that person gone? It's hard to look somebody in the eyes and to say to them, you are going to hell. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you strategies for evangelize today, right? It's not the first thing you're going to bowl up to someone and say, you're going, I mean, maybe you do. Maybe the context calls for it. Do your bridge building, but eventually we have to cross it because eventually that person needs to know that unless they repent, the only destination that awaits them is hell. It's a hard thing. To say. I wonder, when was the last time you looked someone in the eyes and you said to them, you're going to hell. To be, to be honest, I can't think of when I did it last. It's confrontational. We don't like confrontation at the best of times. And to say that to someone, I mean, by all means, build up to it. But if you haven't told them, it's scary. I, I find it scary. I don't, I don't like being rejected. I don't like people saying, well, oh, you... you what are you going on about? You're a bit crazy. I'm scared that I won't know the right words. I mean, what, what comes next in that conversation? Where do we go from there? It would surprise you to know. There's always somebody more clever than you are. There's always somebody more intelligent. Right? Four years at college and I'm still scared that when we get into that position, I'm not going to know what to say next. Surely there's somebody else whose job it is. Surely there's somebody else better equipped than me. But we must. I've been reflecting on why is it that I'm afraid to tell someone that they're going to hell. And I can only think of two possible reasons. Either I don't believe in hell or I don't love them. Because if hell is real and I love them and I care for them, the consequences are too great to not see them saved. Let me show you the heart of somebody who truly cared. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Someone got a page number for me? 1097. Thank you, Jared. Romans chapter 9. Listen to this from verse 1. As he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it. I have, verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Notice his heart. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He looks around him and he sees the nation of Israel in particular here, his brothers, and yet I take it this is his heart for the lost. And it it breaks him to see that they are destined for hell. In fact, such is his anguish that he says, I could wish myself cut off from Christ. I mean, that's just, can you imagine wanting 
yourself give up your own salvation for the sake of somebody else coming to Jesus? I mean, you're, you're kidding, right, Paul? Who, who in their right mind would want that? I take it that's why he starts as he does. I speak the truth. I'm not lying. I'm not kidding. My conscience bears witness. Such is my anguish for the lost. And so when we read of what Paul went through in 2 Corinthians 11, he went through shipwrecks and starvation and beatings and getting chased out of town and on and on and on the list goes because of how much he loved them. He would endure it all for their sake. Is this your heart? Your heart for your neighbour, for your colleague, for your family member, for your schoolmate, for your uni students. Do you weep at the thought of their damnation? Because I've got to confess it's not my heart. Are you terrified at the thought of people being lost to hell? I'm, I'm not. And it shames me. This was the 2020 vision. A church full of saved, mature people whose heart breaks over the fate of others whose single-minded and wholehearted desire is to see them saved, whose hearts are consumed by the love that God showed the world. You know John 3.16? You know how it goes. For God so loved the world that what did he do? Anything and everything to save it. He gave his only son that those who believe would be saved. That is the heart of the Father and that is the heart that I want. And I pray that it's the heart that you want. And there are some among us who do have hearts like that. There's a few that I know of. But in some ways, the few that I know of shows that perhaps for the rest of us, that's not our hearts. Now, Joe's going to share tips and strategies to evangelise in a little while, but I want to keep focusing on our hearts. What do we do? What do we do if that's not who we are? Well, the first thing and the biggest thing and really the only thing that I can think of is to pray. I mean, it sounds trite, doesn't it? It sounds... <laughs> you tell us every week to pray, David. I mean, how is that? But I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to change my own heart. And so the only thing I can think of is to ask the one who made me to change it. And to ask the one who made me anew as a reborn Christian to change me. And so we need to pray earnestly, unceasingly. We need to ask God. What did, when Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What did he tell them to do? You'd think he'd tell them to go harvest, right? He said, go and pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up his workers. I'm going to come to church each morning this week, Monday to Thursday, 8 o'clock, to pray. I, I can't think of anything else to do. You're welcome to come.
please come and join me. I'm going to pray for my own heart. I'm going to pray for yours. I'm going to pray for the lost, that they'd be saved. 8 o'clock, Monday to Thursday this week. Join me if you can. We must pray. See, salvation requires a miracle. There's, there's no other way of describing it. Let me illustrate for you, if I can, what evangelism without prayer is like. Imagine for a moment that the word from, for, from God for you tonight, it's not, but imagine that it is, the word from God is this. You've got to go and find your closest cemetery. You can take whoever you like with you. And your job is to bring back one person from that cemetery. Not, not the bones, right? You're not going grave digging. You've got to bring them back alive. Who are you going to take with you? Are you going to get the, the really good communicator, the great speaker? He's got the snazzy PowerPoint and the Britney mic. You're going to take the big band. What's that going to accomplish? You're going to put on the big event. We'll bring the TVs and the Xboxes down and we'll... None of that's going to do anything, is it? You can take whoever you want. And there's no way you're going to bring the dead back to life. The only person that it makes sense to take with you is the one who stood out the front of Lazarus's tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man walked. In fact, to take that one with you, why stop at one? He can raise the whole cemetery up. That's evangelism without prayer. What do we do? We must pray. We need to dwell on the reality of hell. We, we don't. I mean, let's be honest here. Hell, hell is so far removed from our reality. We're comfortable, mostly middle class. Life's generally okay. We're wealthy. We're Hell? I mean, re really? Really hell? I mean, those of us who live in the light of heaven, which as Christians we do, need to remember those who live in the flickering light of hell. We must have it before us. And so again, this week as we come here, 8 o'clock each morning, I'm going to bring some Bible passages to read, to reflect on. We'll post them on Facebook if you're following the Barney's Facebook. We must dwell on it. The reality of hell needs to grip us. Thirdly, we've got to encourage each other. I don't mean encourage the way we usually use it. Oh, how you going? I'm going to encourage you. I mean, I mean, encourage. I mean, give courage. Give boldness to each other. It's hard. It's scary. It is a task that is difficult. I take it it was difficult for Paul. He asked churches to pray for him that he would have boldness to preach the gospel. Why would he need them to pray for him to have boldness unless it was hard? And he found it scary. And so at church, we need to encourage, give courage to one another. I was chatting with one of my neighbours yesterday. He's a young guy. We've only kind of started connecting recently. Uh, he, he came over to talk to me. It was brilliant. We chatted for a while. And do you think that for the life of me, I could raise the courage to say to him, you're going to hell? I mean, it's way too scary. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, I'll, I'll try and build bridges. But eventually, I need to build up the courage to tell him he is lost and needs saving. And I need you to give me that courage. 
And so I invited him over for dinner. Right? I, I can lower the bar. If I set the bar here, it's easy. I, I can, the bar up here is hard. We're very tempted to just lower it. I come along to board games on Friday nights. Oh, that's easy. The guys will be there. It'll be fun. right? That's, we must encourage one another. I need you and you need each other. Because really in the end, our task, as we saw in Luke 13, is to call on those who are perishing to repent. To turn away from the life that will lead them to hell and to turn to the one who will save them from it. That is the one that we preach. The reality of hell and the disaster that it is only makes it so much sweeter that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that you, that I, repenting and believing, might be saved. Time is short for our neighbours. Maybe they have 30 years, maybe they have 30 minutes. We want them to bear fruit. And so you and I need our hearts to be changed. That we would love them enough to share with them the glorious gospel of the saving one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sorry. Sorry for our selfishness. Sorry for our comfortableness. Sorry for the way that we like just being us in a little cuddle. Sorry for the ways that we so often just ignore the plight, the danger that those around us are in. Please would you break our hearts. Teach us to believe in hell, to fear it, to fear those around us going there and to love them so much, to have your heart that we, like Paul, would suffer and endure anything for their sake. Amen.